So what's your favorite meme format these days? Meme format? Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that like a GIF? Like, uh, so I, I'm mainly asking this question because I want to share mine, but I'll give you an example. You know, you've seen on Twitter the uh, the American Chopper thing? Like where it's five panels and it's the uh, chair throwing? Y- yelling at, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so of those, do you have a particular one of those where you're like, yeah, usually this is pretty good? The Willy Wonka one is usually pretty good. What's that one? I like because I, I've only ever seen Darth do it, where it's the "I said good day" thing, but it's mostly just because it's Darth. It's it. Uh, I've seen it used frequently as like you know the whole phrase like oh like tell me more like when someone's telling you something that you actually really don't find very interesting. Oh, the one where he he yeah he's doing the the fa- so it's not the uh, "I said good day." It's the I'm I'm looking interested but only uh, superficially. I believe it's it's in that same scene in the movie, but slightly different moment. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let me send you a thing. Yeah, so that one's good. Um, and I don't think it qualifies as a meme, but the Darth uh, Trump cabinet position like uh, chart thing is always very good. I think that counts as a meme. Yeah, but a like very hyper specific meme, but I think it works. Yeah. But yeah, I think the the American Chopper one, even though it's a horrible show and, and nobody should have ever watched it, this is pretty cool. Like, there, there's sometimes educational ones, but I really like this one about the uh, tracking number not found. So this is, your package has shipped. Here's your tracking number. Track package. <laughs> tracking number not found. <laughs> Why did I get the email? <laughs> Please wait 24 to 48 hours for the tracking number to update in our system. Yes, this does happen all the time. So that's 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 always pretty good. Um, and then there's one other one. I don't know if you've seen it recently, where it's um, uh, it's like fancy Winnie the Pooh. I I can't say I've seen that. I can't think. I can't find a um, good example of it. Whenever whenever you're talking for a while, I'll go look one up. <laughs> um, but it's where there's regular Winnie Pooh, and and then there's a, an episode where he's wearing a suit, and then it just shows like of like how. I'll, 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 I'll circle back to this when I can find it. Mm. You know what plays really well on an audio show is when you describe visual images. I think I think that's what the people tune in for. I found it. Okay, there we go. <laughs> you can put in the show notes. So there's regular Winnie the Pooh, and then there's Winnie the Pooh in a tuxedo. And this was from uh, I forget where it's from, but yeah. If you want to sound fancy, you say two thousand or ten thousand less two thousand instead of subtraction. This is now in the show notes, titled Fancy Winnie the Pooh. So this is what happens when you have nothing to open the show with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I hope people made it through it. So um, the other alternative to to talk, to open the show was uh, I'm at war with ants in my apartment because mm. it's been off and on rainy. But is, that why your, is that why your audio sounds fuller? Oh, yeah. My, but, yeah, they're, yeah, ants are nature's sound baffles. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the problem is that there aren't that many of them, which makes it way harder to figure out where they're coming from. So it's just frustrating. That kind of makes it worse. You'd it rather does. just, yeah. And they're not anywhere interesting. Like they're not eating all the food. It's just they're they're just around in the kitchen. They're not in the the um, network closet, are they? Uh, I found one, but I think it was just one dude who got who got lost or missed his yeah. Uber. <laughs> sure uh, uh so i guess i guess we should we should say in case there is a notable difference in the audio it's kind of hard to tell when we're doing this live but 
you your setup is in flux you you will not tell me why but i've been informed we'll find out more next week and then my setup is in flux because we are completely reconfiguring the office or i i guess more appropriately put we um are setting up the office kind of for the first time since we moved in we've kind of just had a temporary setup for this first year didn't you for the first couple of weeks when you were you moved into your new house like you did the show like handheld i there were a couple of times where i did it handheld right when we first moved in because this room which is you know just one of the bedrooms that we use as an office when we very first moved in was like literally just whatever we didn't put away just throw it in that room and like close the door and it'll go away so there really wasn't like any space in here for a while. And then I also did the show handheld for the first few weeks that we had Branson because um, I think there were a couple of times where like the lady friend was off doing something. So I was watching him while we were recording and because he was a little puppy, he you know kind of needed like constant attention. <laughs> you said that like it's in the past tense. Uh, you, Well, yeah. <laughs> and now it's... um. Now there are moments where he needs constant attention, and then there are, there are some moments now where he's content just to kind of do his own thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, if you know, if it's you who he doesn't see every day, then maybe those moments are fewer. And far oh no, I, I was just making a joke that uh, he's he's like just setting up his Twitter or doing something or mm, right. Yeah. Um. What was I say? Oh yeah, because so, so this is going to be a very you heavy episode. So we're we're going to talk about some stuff. Um. So yeah, do you want to start with your home office or alternatively, I wanted to know more about, you seem to be uh, like a, a traveling bandwagon or that's the wrong word. Like you're, you are following right behind the sharks everywhere they go now. Right. Yeah. So, I, I, so I'm curious about what that, what that's about. Did you get season tickets or what's the deal? They, what were they, the, um, the grateful dead, what they call them deadheads that would like follow them around on their concert tours and stuff. I guess sure, maybe. maybe. I, yeah, maybe I'm the equivalent for the Sharks. Um, yeah, we, we could talk about that first. So we, uh, yeah, went to the playoff opener last night, which was a lot of fun. Um, I think probably the origin of your question goes back a couple of weeks ago, where for, I think for the very first time in their history, or at least for some uh, number of years, they had a back-to-back against Anaheim and LA. Usually when they go down to Southern California, they they just play one of those teams, but they happen to play LA on a Thursday night and then Anaheim the next night. So kind of on a spur-of-the-moment thing, it was like a week or two ahead of time, uh, the lady friend and I decided to make a little trip of it and go down and, and see both of those games. So it kind of feels like I've been to a lot of games lately, but no, I... I am not a season ticket holder, um, mostly because, um, as I was reminded of yesterday, you know, getting down to San Jose on a weekday, it's challenging, let's say. <laughs> I left I left our house, I think, at about a little after 3 p.m. yesterday. I uh, needed to pick up the lady friend and then, you know, head down there for the 7.30 start. Got there maybe about 6.15. And then, you know, got home about midnight. So it ends up being kind of a long day. How much does an like a non-playoff game decent ticket to uh, to a San Jose Sharks game cost? Well, there's the Sharks, because they're a pretty good team, tickets are a little pricey. Um, that was actually another 
part of the appeal of going to LA and Anaheim like we did because this is a this is a rare season where uh, both of those teams actually for the last handful of years have been really good and just for a variety of reasons this year both teams were like two of the worst in the entire league and so you know because we were going pretty late in the season and they were way out of playoff contention in the LA game we sat like three rows back from the glass for like way less than 100 bucks a seat whereas like in San Jose I guess I've never really looked that closely, but I think generally seats there, you know, at least a couple hundred, if not a few hundred dollars a piece. Um, and then in Anaheim, we sat behind one of the goals, just, you know, a handful of rows back and same thing. Tickets were you know less than a hundred bucks, whereas in San Jose, they'd be at least a couple hundred. Hmm. So in San Jose, we usually sit, you know, a little bit higher up, which actually in hockey um is not a, is not a bad thing if you actually want to see the game sitting up higher is actually better yeah sitting re- sitting really low is a uh kind of a, a fun novelty but it, it wouldn't be the way like having season tickets down there i i would not enjoy i don't think like in la we were we were literally literally sitting so close to the glass and we were kind of on one end of the ice where if the puck was in <laughs> the far corner on our side we could, like couldn't see so we like had to look up at the the jumbotron to see, you know, what was happening. Mm-hmm. Well, but if you're that close, you you have a better chance of catching foul teeth. Um, <laughs> what is the um, do the uh, L.A. Kings have a mascot? And please, hopefully, it's not just a, as uninventive as just a king. They do. I don't actually recall ever seeing him when we were down there. I think it's a, a lion, if I'm not mistaken. I couldn't tell you anything about him, though. Because S.J. Sharkey, he's a pretty big fixture of games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He, I, I Actually, I thought of you because... Don't know where um, this is going. The, not last night, but the game I had gone to before, um, which was one of the last couple of regular season games up here, uh, Sharkey did the thing where before the puck drop, he came down from the ceiling. And I know that that's, that's one of your favorite YouTube videos of... Uh, I don't know if it was like the the Sharks' like very first game in in what's now SAP Center. It, it was one of their early games anyway, and Sharky got like stuck up in the up in the rafters. Mm-hmm. Pretty good, but yeah, no, been been lucky enough to go to a handful of games, and um, last night's in particular was was fun. I know hockey's not your thing. I probably couldn't convince you otherwise, but I will say that. Uh, playoff hockey in particularly in person is uh even if you're not super into the sport just the energy in the building is a really fun experience especially in a game last night where you know they played really well start to finish it was the first game it was against vegas which has become kind of a a rival here in their first couple of years so well now's now's your shot because i think i'm pretty malleable right now because i'm 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 fairly sour on baseball, where I'm kind of auditioning new sports. So I'm debating whether I just become a bandwagon Warriors fan, or like pick up somebody like the Milwaukee Bucks and just become a Ben Thompson. And or like, because soccer's not a thing here much. Like I know San Jose has the earthquakes, but that's still not really a thing. So it's either it's I think it's either basketball or hockey. I think so. What would be? I have a couple of thoughts here. One is with the NBA thing. You know, obviously, since my beloved Lakers, <laughs> we're going to get to that 
did not did not make the playoffs and have been in the news for some other reasons too, which yeah, I trust we'll get to. So I kind of need a team to root for. And I for me, I think it's gonna be the Bucks just because Giannis is the best. You can so. put a link to the show notes and I don't have a link handy, so I'm just gonna make you Google search for it. But there's a thing where, yeah, there's that one guy uh with the cool name who Giannis. um yeah, probably not gonna be able to repeat that. It's like Dara Kajaswahi. I don't expect you to be able to say it either. So but no, there's a girl who comes to like a, a like a book signing or some like a jersey signing or wherever you know like the sports player just signs things for two hours nonstop, and she brings him a little uh, like art project she made, and then it's just a really sweet moment, and that just seems cool, and that seems like something that you're going to get much more with a basketball player, especially not in the top tier markets that you're not going to get with like football or baseball or something like that. I mean, even within the NBA, that is a that's a special moment. He's a he's a special player. He comes from extremely humble, uh, from an extremely humble upbringing in Greece, and I think he's he's just a really happy guy who's grateful for you know everything that he's gotten to experience here now. And he's he's a fun guy to root for. He's got a pretty good shot at winning the MVP for this season, and a, you know a decent chance at making the NBA finals, I think this year. So I, I think they'd be, they'd be a fun team to root for. Um, but then the other thing I, I would push you for is, um, is to think about watching a little bit more hockey. And I think this would be the time to do it because I mean, playoff hockey in person is incredible. Like I was just describing, but I think even on TV, uh, the playoffs in the NHL are, are just awesome. Super intense, super fast paced. Um, there's actually, I know this part you'd appreciate. There's actually less fighting because, you know, <laughs> games actually matter. Yeah. I mean, guys don't want to be, you know, spending five minutes in the penalty box. So there's, there's usually a little bit less, less fisticuffs as you would say. Uh, so I would, I would highly recommend, uh, watching, watching a few games. And if, you know, if you're really feeling up for it, going to a game playoffs are, are great. Yeah, it's just uh, I've I've watched a couple of hockey games. And I think I was texting you during one of them where I was uh, there was some guy who's who has very long hair or something who was apparently very important to the Sharks success. But it just feels like bizarro baseball sort of where like every ad during um, a Sharks game is Honda instead of it being Toyota for the Major League Baseball. And also all the all the um, advertisers are weird and extremely niche tech companies. I don't know. Yeah, but especially if you're at the game, that's not really much of an issue. And then, you know, I a pro tip if you're going to watch the game at home on TV is, you know, you wait 30 to 45 minutes and then you kind of, you know, you skip through a bunch of the ads as you're watching it. Well, I'm, I'm sure people would consider that theft. <laughs> that's darn near pri uh, piracy. Uh, yeah, maybe. I don't know, but it's, it's probably basketball because basketball, even if you don't care about either team, it's still fairly entertaining to watch. Where, like, if you're just watching, um, well, I can't say the Phillies anymore, but if you're watching the White Sox against the Padres, like, just literally you could watch paint dry and it'd be more interesting. Yeah, I mean, baseball in April, I'm, I'm going to pass. Yeah, I think baseball just with, with the, the um, stadium name change, Bochi retiring, Posey being probably at the end of his career. It's like, it's just, it's not... There's not a whole lot to love about the Giants. Yeah. So, who knows? I'm not going to like abandon the team I've liked for a decade but or, or more, but I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out. 
Well, give uh, give the Sharks a try. Game two is tomorrow night as we're recording this, so you'll have your you have your chance. Are they playing the T-Mobile people? Uh, yeah, they're well. It's, it's a best, it's a best of seven series. So oh dear, oh no. Okay. Um. So then your other question was about my what was it? office setup here. Yeah. Well, specifically, so, I'm I'm very impressed. You have a very impressive desk that goes uh it goes edge to edge, as hey, as um, um, as Tim Cook would say. Yeah, but but there's still some like, bezels. But this is true edge to edge, though, <laughs> not not the fake iPhone version of edge to edge. You just cut a little notch in the desk. Route <laughs> <laughs> your, your cable, sir. That's right. Uh, yeah. So we the biggest change in the room is we got a new desk. The desk that was in here before, which is kind of a, a carryover from our apartment. And so the desk that we have now, we we thought about doing like a you know a custom built-in thing. But quickly found out that that is horrifically expensive. So the lady friend, being the creative one that she is, came up with this idea to buy some prefabricated cabinets just from Home Depot. So that's kind of the base. And then the tabletop, which you said kind of goes wall to wall in the room. So it kind of looks like it's built into the room, uh, is custom made by a couple that we met a handful of years ago at a local antique fair. And it's great because, you know, they're a small, small local business. They're really nice. You know, they make pretty much anything you want them to. And they're incredibly affordable. I mean, an absolute fraction of the price that you'd pay from a pottery barn or even like a West Elm. And it's, you know, it's all real wood and it's, very very nicely done so we, we've we've had a few things made by them including this desktop and it's it's yeah it's awesome it's a huge workspace came out really really nice um although i do have a, a little bit of a funny story about it um, please <laughs> so you know as you can imagine it was a little bit of a process to get right so because it's it's like 114 inches long which keep that number in mind because it's going to become important later in the story. Mm-hmm. So it obviously wouldn't fit in my car, and it wouldn't fit in the uh, lady friend's car either. So we borrowed her dad's car. He has like a, a van. So we drove over to Oakland um, on a Saturday. So in some traffic. It was a little bit of a process, kind of hard to find once we got there, but you know, eventually picked up the table. It's it's incredibly heavy, <laughs> so getting it in the van was, you know, a process, but we got it in, got it home, you know, got it in the house, you know, brought it down the hallway, which was a you know, a little bit of a, a puzzle, you know, go to slide it into its place, and it's like a quarter of an inch, maybe even actually a little bit less, too long, so it just it just won't fit. And I think it's because, I don't know if you could tell from the picture that I sent you, but, you know, it, it bumps up against a windowsill and we were kind of thinking that it would slide in below the windowsill, but I think the material ended up being a little bit taller than we were anticipating. So it bumped up against that uh, sill. And so (laughs) the next day, uh, the lady friend's dad had to come over and we had to saw off just a tiny tiny little bit uh on the edge and then it then it slid in 
So did you, you saw the, uh, the windowsill or the desk? Uh, we saw the desk huh. and we, you know, it, there's no plans to obviously move it from where it is. <laughs> exactly so. Um, but we did keep the little piece that we sawed off. So if, if it ever goes somewhere else, it'd be pretty easy to, to reattach. And it actually came off pretty solid. So it, it would, it would attach back on pretty, pretty nicely. I think. And use it as a hiking stick. <laughs> um, no, it, it, it looks, it looks gorgeous. Like, I mean, yeah, it looks really fancy and nice and solid and yeah, it looks cool. Like so it looks better than any possible thing you could have gotten for under five thousand dollars at at anywhere else. So that's, well, and that's, that's pretty and great, that, right? And this that's this was like you know a tenth of that price. So <clears throat> back out the math. Hold on. Let's. Mm, I'm kidding. Um. So wait, where do cables go though? Actually, it's it's tough to tell from your picture. So is there um, any cable routing option? Yeah. That, well, sort of. So that's going to be probably this weekend's project or maybe the next couple of weekends project <laughs> but you know i have an ethernet cable that's running into the room and it actually comes into the room right behind where the desk is so that's nice so that's basically already set up there's also an outlet right behind the desk and so the vision right now is we're going to use one of the cabinet drawers because on the the bottom row of drawers is pretty, they're pretty big, so I think we're going to use just one of those as basically like a place to you know put in the UPS and kind of shove in a bunch of cables and stuff, and then I'll drill holes in the back mm-hmm. and then run uh, power like out through there, and then we'll kind of just like ac- excess cables can kind of just sit behind the cabinets and you you know you won't really see them. Sure. Yeah, seems like a sound strategy. Yeah. Um, actually, I'm going to keep making you talk because this, this seems very like a logical uh, place to go. And this is something that you left out of the outline, which I think you're, you're bearing the lead here. So you, uh, because uh, you're, you were so incest um, by the Amazon acquisition of Eero, you incensed, sorry, um, that you switched to Google Fi or Google Wi-Fi or whatever that product is called. Yeah, Google Wi-Fi. Um, yeah, I, so I, you know, I, I only set this up uh, less than a less than a week ago. I just set it up last weekend. So I probably more to come over the next few weeks. But you know, obviously, anybody who's listened to the show over the last year since I've moved into this new house has known that I don't know what it is, but ever since I've moved in here, it, the Eero has just been super, super unreliable, both on my Mac and on my iPhone. It's spread across two different Macs now and two different iPhones, so I know it's not it's not device related. Um, but you know the issue that I have is if both devices will all of a sudden just not be connected to the internet. Like my little Wi-Fi logo will still say that I have a full connection, but you go to load a web page or even open the Eero app and you just don't get any information until you turn Wi-Fi off and turn it back on. And that started happening a little bit less um, a couple of months ago, a- around the same time that I had you know, done the Ethernet hardwiring, probably a coincidence. Eero is always pushing out software updates, so it's kind of hard to know <laughs> what updates fix things, what updates break things. 
Um, but in the last three to four weeks, it's gotten significantly worse, particularly on my Mac, where it's not even me moving around the house and the device maybe just not switching from one access point to the next, which I suspect sometimes happens with my iPhone. Like I'll literally just be sitting in one place with my Mac and after an hour or two of use, the internet just stops working until I turn Wi-Fi off, turn it back on. And that happened to us last week when we were recording. Now, listeners won't know because this is a very professionally edited show and, you know, they listeners would be none for the wiser that we had an interruption but well but listeners should also know that you don't use ethernet and that's and i don't I, I, no matter how wife how reliable the wi-fi is that that's very concerning well i as part of this new setup i will i will likely have because of my little USB-C hub that i made a chef special pick a month or two ago has an ethernet port so mm-hmm. I'll, I'll probably set up something there mm-hmm. um but that was kind of the last straw (laughs) because times where we do have connection drops editing the show becomes (laughs) a bit more a bit more of a project so uh like literally minutes after we started recording or stopped recording rather i started um looking around at mesh network alternatives which i was like on the border of doing anyway and this was just like the last straw um and it just so happened that Google Wi-Fi, which is already one of the cheaper options out there, is kind of on sale everywhere right now, which I assume means there's probably a new version coming imminently, especially since I've now bought one. Mm-hmm. But I mean, whatever. I, I don't I don't need necessarily the latest and greatest in Wi-Fi technology. You're lying um, to yourself. I am kind when, of lying When have you ever said, I don't need the latest and greatest? Yeah, that's fair. Uh, but anyway, a, a three pack was going for two fifty nine, um, and actually at Home Depot they were also throwing in a Google Home Mini for free. So you know, by the time I sell my Eros and that Google Home Mini, I'll basically have just about broken even. So you know, it's not really not really costing me anything to make the switch, which was another reason why I just wanted to go ahead and do it. Um. And I mean, again, more to come. It's only been five or six days since I set it up, but so far, so good. Um, it's been been reliable. Haven't seen the same disconnect issues so far. Um, and the setup, incredibly easy. Really, really thoughtfully thoughtfully done. The the app is. It's, I mean, it's very Google. It has that. I don't know, what do they call it? The not modular design, but what am I thinking of? Hmm? You know, like the, what's like the Google design language? Like for user interfaces? Yeah. Material design. Material design. Thank you. It's, it's very much that, but it, but it looks, it looks nice. Um, and so I, and I've, I've actually set up, <laughs> I've set up two of these systems in the last five days or six days because um the lady friend's family has desperately needed a mesh network set up at their house because they they just had like a router upstairs and then one of those like you remember those like range extenders mhm they they just had like one of those and it you know it, the, those things just they just never worked very yeah. well um so 
um, after I set up mine, I, you know, they had, they've been in the market for a while too. So I, I mentioned like, Hey, these things are on sale. I just set one up yesterday and, you know, the setup was really easy and initial impressions have been pretty good. So, uh, went out and got a second one of those and, and did the second setup. Well, good. It'll be, it'll be nice to hear a long-term review, but overall, like initially just no connection drops or everything looks fine after the first week. Yep. And they, um, you know, I, it, the set, the one quirky thing with the setup is even if you plan on hardwiring all of your access points, which you, it, you can totally do and it, it totally supports you, you can't have them wired during the setup process or it just kind of freaks out. Um, so that was kind of weird. So I, I had to set them up wirelessly, but then after the setup was complete and after it had done a, like a software update and stuff, I could then plug in my ethernet cables, um, which is now working fine. The only other little minor quirk is you actually have to reboot the network in order for that then to, for, for the access points to basically switch in from mesh mode to hardwired mode. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after I did that, um, it worked fine. So yeah, they're all three hardwired. Speeds have been good, and uh, so far reliability's been good. But again, it's only been five or six days. So tune in next week where I rant about how crappy just every kind of Wi-Fi is. Yeah, I will throw out there that I think you upgraded your iPhone specifically to solve an Eero issue. You use that as the uh, justification for it. Just in case astute listeners don't remember. I mean, I would have bought the new iPhone anyway, but I do, I guess, try to come up with new and creative excuses every year to buy it. So sure, that sounds like something I would have said. Yes. Um, all right, what else is there? Um so we have uh it was a busy Wednesday. So there's a lot uh, you wait, today's Thursday. Mm-hmm. It was a busy Thursday. So uh, the outline is a little out of date, so I have some new things that we should probably address. So basically, I think that this show is going to be all follow-up because pretty much everything relates to stuff we've already talked about at length. Um, and let's, let's start with the easy stuff first. Okay. So Amazon, we, we, we talked about the cashless, um, uh, society thing and, and, and the concerns that have been waged against Amazon Go stores and places that have switched to only credit card payments. Uh, we talked about that probably a month ago, but it turns out that CNBC reports that an Amazon executive said that it, um, it is likely that Amazon Go stores will uh, begin to accept cash to address uh, discrimination concerns. Um, I think it was the city of either Philadelphia or Baltimore and also San Francisco that were voicing that concern. And we seem to have very differing opinions on this. Well, I mean, so I, I think we agree that businesses accepting cash is something that they can do or something that rather they should do. Um, it's easy to get caught up, in, you know, or caught up's not the right phrase, but it, it's easy to sort of forget that you know, there are a ton of people who, for many reasons, don't have access to a credit or debit card and just, you know, have to do all of their day-to-day purchasing in cash and shutting out those people. I just, I just don't really think is good for anybody. So I think in principle, the, the concept is good, but I think maybe where we 
disagree is the impact this is going to have on a store like Amazon Go. Uh, kind of. I mean, again, we, people can go back and listen to that episode a couple of weeks ago, but uh, I like I, I I was saying that the core issue of underbanked customers is a greater societal issue versus forcing businesses to still keep that around. But that that's not the key thing to relitigate here. But for this one, I like I guess I feel that it completely defeats the purpose of what the Amazon Go store is. Like I'm not saying that like or like I'm not trying to misrepresent the fact that like they will be taking away the automatic payment portion of it. But if you now accept alternate forms of payment, doesn't that completely change the concept of the store and discourage adoption of that whole thing? Like it just now becomes a high tech convenience store. Right? Well, I mean, I know I, I don't think so because if, I mean, we have to kind of, I guess, wait and see how this is implemented in Amazon Go stores. But if they implement it the way that I sort of envision them to do so, then I would assume that when you come come and go in and out of the store, there will kind of now be two areas, right? There'll be the area that they have now, which is just like the little um, kind of like metro station looking thing where, you know, you just scan the little code on your Amazon Go app, the little gates swing open, you go in, and then you kind of, you go out that same way. Whereas, you know, for people who in this future state will decide to pay with cash, maybe there's a, you know, a separate section where there'll be more like traditional cash registers. And assuming that is the setup, then... For someone like you or me who's using the app, your experience isn't really going to change at all. And then in terms of adoption, you know, there's still a huge convenience in using the app as opposed to cash. So if you're someone who has the means to use the app, I'm not really sure why having a cash option would in any way dissuade you from using the app, which is sort of objectively more convenient. But if you, okay, let's say you, you didn't know what Amazon go was and you were just walking by and you're like, Oh, I could go for a sandwich and a spin drift right now. And you pop in and right now you would have had to have downloaded the app and actually bought into what the concept of the store is. But if you can just pay with like regular money, then that, that most people would then not make the leap to that. Yeah, but I think a lot of those people then will look and say, oh, wow, there's these people coming and going without even stopping at the, the register. Like, what's going on with that? Especially if there's a line to check out and you're like seeing all these people just leaving, you're going to see that and go, huh, I want to I want to do that next time. And then that'll, you know, prompt you to download the app. Maybe. Yeah, I like I think this whole entire issue is extremely complicated, but I, just, I don't know, like it it seems like. It just had a very, very, very clear vision for what it was, and for the like that that this just kind of, I don't like that that changes fundamentally what the store is. The one the one thing that I I wouldn't say have an issue with, I would say I just genuinely want to sort of get a better understanding of. Like I'm still kind of waiting for this story to be written. Is specifically in the case of San Francisco, these Amazon Go stores just started opening what in the last 
four to six months, maybe even a little less. It's, so it's it's very strange. And there's actually like more of them going in. There's like, I think there's two open now and there's one or two that are close to opening. It's It's weird to me that San Francisco seemingly embraced these and then all of a sudden now has sort of you know, was threatening to shut them down if they didn't start accepting cash. Well, because it's popular politically. Yeah, I mean, I I, I guess so. I mean, maybe the answer is just that simple. But um, I mean, I, and I'm <laughs> Amazon doesn't need my sympathy here, but I'm it, it is. Well, but but I mean, it's an interesting concept of like, I think a lot of people like, I mean, it, I think it's hard to be against them. Like you can hate Amazon the company, but it's still a cool idea. Of just like a nice clean Seven Eleven that's just grab and go, and you just, like that's that's a neat concept. Yeah, I mean, I've I've still only been that one time, <laughs> but um, but yeah, I I, I agree in, in concept. It's it's a really it's a really cool idea. I mean, again, the the greater issue of underbanked customers, uh, of like or segments of the population, like that that's a much greater societal issue, and those are. That's a segment of the population that is getting screwed all over the place. Um, and that just, again, we've talked at length about just the increased costs of being low income in America. Like that, that's, I don't know, like, I'm not sure like uh, uh, that like screwing with an Amazon pilot project for a cashierless store is really solving that or, or that that's really where political efforts are making the greatest impact. I guess I guess that's that's my internal debate is like you, like you, like if you're setting up bills in in um a city government to ban things rather than addressing the reason why you feel that might be unfair to some like uh, it's complicated. But. No, that that's another area that I that will agree on, which is targeting Amazon Go in particular is kind of a cheap political headline grab as opposed to going after the the core issue which is a lot more complicated and isn't isn't really going to hold people's attention the way that going after amazon does yeah um so yeah, I'm not, uh, we can throw a link in the show notes, but we kind of already talked about Euro for a bit. But Mashable had a um, an extensive story that seemed kind of uncharacteristic for that uh, for that type of website, but it was actually fairly well reported and written that explained kind of how the Amazon Euro buyout went down, who's actually making money out of the deal, and how um, most of the employers uh, employees got got fucked with their stock options. Um, and got nothing out of the deal while the executives got um, kind of cushy pay raises uh, to be part of the transition team as it moves to, to Amazon. Um, so that's, that's an interesting read. People should go check that out. But I'm not sure we have a whole lot more to add about that. There's a whole debate on Silicon Valley Twitter about people being mad that they're like, oh, yeah, that's how it works. And then people who felt that that was unfair just being like, yeah, maybe it shouldn't. Yeah, I mean, this is. Um... You know, while I'm somewhat in the financial world, if you will, this this particular type of finance is a bit outside my wheelhouse. But um, you know, the Mashable article talks about how at one point the company had a two hundred and seventy seven million dollar valuation, and I you know I would presume that there were some stock options issued 
kind of in accordance with that valuation, but then the company ended up selling for a reported $97 million. So, yeah, not um, not great. Yeah, the best part is there's a from the uh, some kind of like exit package that was mailed to all employees. It says, if you decide to exercise your options, you will need to pay an applicable exercise price for such options up front and will be then entitled to receive uh, three cents for each share of common stock in the merger. Because the exercise price for all options outstanding under the stock plan is greater than three cents, uh, the company would not anticipate or recommend that any com- uh, company option holders exercise their options. Which is a very amazing paragraph. That could have just been uh, replaced with "Go fuck yourself." Um, and also, just saying it out, it's outside of your wheelhouse. I, I disagree. For from somebody who has the uh, Tesla license plate cap table, I would expect you to be <laughs> super all about knowing uh, pre money and post money acquisition valuations and, and and that kind of stuff. Yeah, we've we've had a little thing going offline, which you know, going back to the opening of this show is is a visual thing that probably wouldn't play super well on audio, but it's it's been sort of an an axe of mine to grind for a while uh tesla owners with these really obnoxious vanity plates i i think vanity plates frequently not always i'll point out carlos can be kind of obnoxious almost um, always almost always but but not always and this is coming from somebody who had one who had to explain it to literally everybody and then abandon the idea <laughs> yeah exactly but tesla ones in particular are just they're the worst. They are 10 times worse than any other type of car vanity plate. And Well, it's exacerbated by the fact that we're in the Bay Area, so literally all of them are stupid uh like VC jokes. It's yeah, it's VC jokes or it's like haha, this car doesn't take oil or gas joke. Uh ugh, it's ugh. So we we've made it a habit now to Whenever we see them or whenever we see them on the internet, we'll we'll send each other links. Yeah. I think this started when I brought up that I saw one that was that the vanity plate was frunky. And I actually thought that was I thought it was lame, but it was also that's kind of funny. It's it's at least not VC or oil related. So I'll get I'll give it that. Currently the worst one is the person who had like a first generation Model S and they had the, the fucking stupid uh, California, like the California retro 1960s black, like that is, you can immediately know the kind of person that has that car just by knowing the fact that they have that type of license plate. How do you, how do you get that? Do you just, you, you just, just pay you, extra? you just pay an extra 60 bucks. Like I, like I have like the national parks plate, like you just, you just spend an extra 50 bucks and they, that goes to some type of cause. And I, th- I'm, I don't think there's any cause associated with the retro ones. But but uh, somebody had a first gen Model S and it said pre IPO and fuck you. <laughs> um. So yeah. So that that's a thing. So related, actually not related to that. I think that's it. Um, you have your pick of either talking about uh, MJ leaving the Lakers, Uber's S one or Disney Plus. We will be talking about all three, but you get to decide the order. Let's get the Laker news out of the way. So what does the president of basketball operations do? So there are different structures uh, within different teams. I I think there are some teams where you'll you'll have the general manager who is generally thought of the one who's kind of in charge of 
the roster. So they're in charge of drafting players, trading players, negotiating contracts with players. They handle basically everything roster related. And I think there are some teams where the general manager will just report directly to the owner of the team. But then you have other structures like what the Lakers had where you have the general manager, which in the case of the Lakers is Rob Palenka. But then you, instead of him reporting directly to Jeannie Buss, who's their owner, you had Magic Johnson, who was in this, what was his exact title? VP of Basketball Operations? I think it was president, but... Pre- oh, president, right. Um, so basically sort of like another level of management between the general manager and the owner. Mm-hmm. And I think it, for teams that have someone in that role, you know, you usually associate that person with being kind of like the general manager, where by all accounts, being a GM in any sport, uh, basketball included, it's a really, really hard job. It's, you know, it's a lot of hours, it's a lot of travel, it's a lot of pressure, it's, you know, kind of nonstop 365 days a year, because really, like, even with like a team like the Warriors, who's been to the last few finals, like the way, the way the calendar works out is, you know, the NBA draft is just a handful of days after the finals are over. And then summer league is shortly thereafter. And so it's like these GMs, you know, even if they win the title, have to kind of turn around a day or two later and start thinking about the future of the team and start thinking about next season. So it's a, it's a tough, tough job. I mean, I'm sure it's a rewarding and fun job too, but it's a it's a job where you have to really put in the work. And, you know, Magic Johnson, I think, treated his role at the Lakers as a bit more ceremonial. And also, you know, Magic's an incredibly successful businessman who's got a lot of other ventures, including a partial ownership in the Dodgers. And I just don't think he ever really dedicated himself to the role in a way that's required for that type of job. And so, I don't know, I'm trying to spin his departure this week as being potentially a a positive thing for the Lakers going forward. What is your thought on him announcing it to the media before uh, letting Jeannie Buss know? That was awful. That was, that was really, really bad. I um, was driving home from work when this all happened. And so, you know, I, I think I stopped by like the grocery store and you know, looked at my phone and like saw the headline and was like, oh, geez. Um, and it, like, you know, my first assumption was that, well, maybe Jeannie fired him or maybe there was some kind of like mutual parting or some, there was something more to the story there. But when I came home and read that he basically just gave this impromptu press conference and acknowledged that literally no one else knew this was going to happen. It's just, it's, it's the worst. Uh, but it, but it's, you know, it, it, magic sort of has a history of doing this. Like the, the most recent example, which Bill Simmons talked about, um, on a podcast that he did right after the news happened was, you know, he worked with magic on NBA Countdown, which is ESPN's pregame show before NBA games. 
And, you know, Magic was on that show with Bill Simmons for a season. He was going to come back the following season. They shot a bunch of promotional commercial ads and stuff. And then like two weeks before the season started, Magic just decided he didn't want to do it anymore and quit. So what do you think this means for the Lakers then? Well, it's an opportunity to... So, I mean, you know, the the Lakers, since Jerry Buss passed away, have been a total mess where, you know, for the years after, there was a power struggle amongst his kids in terms of who should be doing what on the team. And a couple of years ago, when Jeannie took full control from her siblings over the team, at that time, there was this opportunity to bring in fresh people um, and really kind of reboot the way the team was run. But instead, the team did something that the Lakers kind of have a long history of doing, which is kind of wrongfully just bringing back people who aren't necessarily the most qualified to do a job, but who get the job because they've previously been associated with the team. Mm -hmm. So obviously... You know, Magic was, you know, one of the best Laker players to have ever played. And then Rob Plinka was Kobe's agent. And so there was that connection. And so in- instead of going out and doing an exhaustive search and hiring kind of the most t- qualified people for the job, they hired people who were already associated with the team. And they've done that before with coaches too, like with Byron Scott, and I think a little bit with like Luke Walton now. It's all guys who you know, have played for the team or have been associated with the team. And what they really need to do is go out. They basically have unlimited money to spend because on executive positions, you know, th- these salaries don't count towards your salary cap or anything. So you can literally just go out and spend however much money you want to. And the Lakers, with their you know two billion dollar Time Warner cable TV contract, have all the money in the world to go out and hire super talented people, and that's what they should do. But a story came out, I think today, that Rob Palenka is apparently going to remain as the GM and is potentially going to expand his responsibilities. So who knows? How do you think LeBron feels about all this? Like, is it because here's I like, I, I mean, as an outsider, he, I, I assume he, like, he, he doesn't need the money. So I assume he came not just because they backed up the Brinks truck, like, because he thought they were going to do something interesting. So isn't it in his interest? And I know it, the, I, I know people make jokes about one single person can carry an entire NBA team, but isn't it, doesn't it kind of suck for him if the team just can't get it together and he himself can't be every single person on it? So, like, doesn't, I'd be like, he doesn't want to go out on a team that just implodes on itself because of business and like concerns and nepotism and a bunch of weird stuff. So what's his deal with this? So I think part of him coming to the Lakers probably was the organization and was like Magic in particular. Like Magic is the one who he met with prior to you know agreeing to join the team. So I, I think that was maybe a small part of his decision. But the the bigger thing with LeBron was almost no matter what, I think he wanted the next stage of his career 
to be coming to LA, regardless of what the actual basketball situation was. He he wanted to come for family reasons, specifically, you know, his son just started high school and the best high school basketball programs in the country are in the LA area. Um, and then also, you know, LeBron kind of also like magic has really big aspirations kind of post basketball career and specifically around the media industry. And so I think living out there and kind of being around that area full time was going to serve kind of his longer term interests. So I don't, you know, I think basketball obviously played a part of it and, and magic specifically, but I don't think that was the the primary reason he came. Hmm. So there's no light at the end of the tunnel or they're probably going to, they're probably in a giant situation where it's going to be a few years before they're good. If that ever happens. Well, cause, cause I thought that was the whole thing is that the trend was they had, they, because they had performed so poorly, they had some good um, draft picks and stuff like that and bring LeBron on like that. There was a, there was the recipe or there were the ingredients there for success, but that's probably not going to happen. There were. And this last season, I think came down to, sort of two things. One is LeBron got hurt. He had his first long-term injury of his career where he got hurt Christmas Day against the Warriors, uh, which the Lakers ended up winning that game in Oracle Arena on Christmas Day. They were like fourth place in the whole Western Conference and generally looking okay, like generally looking at like a, you know, probably fifth or sixth seed playoff spot, which would have been sort of right in line with expectations. But he got hurt, missed about a quarter of the season. Um, and then secondarily, and I would say equally important, is, you know, the, the team basically tried to trade the entire roster for Anthony Davis, who uh, plays for the Pelicans and who put it out there through his agent, who of course, just so happens to also be um, part of the same agency as LeBron James is represented by, uh, put it out there that he had wanted to be traded. And all these stories came out around, you know, the Lakers, like literally trading like every one of their young guys to get Davis. And when that fell through, you know, not only were these guys you know, disappointed that they were going to be potentially traded, but also it was clearly LeBron or at the very least the people close to LeBron who orchestrated the whole thing. And so now, you know, if you're one of his teammates, you're looking around like, man, this guy just basically tried to ship me out of here. So yeah, it's a, it's a mess going forward. And then on top of all of this, you know, like half of their roster this year, as has been the case for the last few years, was just on like a one ter- one year contract. So they're going to have a bunch of new guys, very little continuity going into next season. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's not a good situation. Hmm. Well, you know what is a good situation in uh, good business? Ride sharing. Mm. So. Uh, la- two weeks ago, uh, Lyft went public, uh, and, uh, kind of had, had a little bit of, had a pop on the first day and, and struggled. And people wrote a bunch of doom and gloom articles about how that means that every IPO is doomed thereafter. 
Um, and then Uber is uh, doing its own thing now. So they are going to list on the NYSE. They released their S1 earlier today. Um, so it's it's fairly new. And I assume we probably don't have a whole lot of in-depth uh, analysis or things to say. But I mean, there were some um, standout things in the S1 that I think people would probably, that, that are worth discussing right now. Uh, it turns out they're not making a lot of money. Uh, turns out you can um, kind of just pick and choose what you want to actually include in your income statement and kind of back out the math and make anything look like anything. And um, yeah, it's just a lot of little stuff. Like a lot of little nuggets, like they're paying Google $58 million uh, over two years to just provide mapping data. They actually reference the hashtag delete Uber campaign as one of their risk factors in the S1. Um, yeah, and they also wrote in the S1 that they, it's very likely they may never be profitable. Yeah, I mean, to be, I guess, to play devil's advocate, sort of, although, you know, I'm I'm with you here. The S1s or basically any kind of SEC filings are meant to be ultra, ultra conservative. And you you basically just sort of throw everything out there in an effort to, you know, kind of cover your own ass. So it's not unusual for these risk factors that are listed to be a bit over the top and exhaustive. Um, but, you know, putting that aside, just the, I mean, the core financials with Uber, as you've you know, long, long speculated on, and it had been on since the early days. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just, actually going to say, but I'm, I'm excited. Um, I mean, hashtag Carlos was right. That's Hell basically yeah. what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, you know, they're, they're a confusing company because it, it seemed like for a while that they were all in on the whole self-driving thing and that, if they could just get to the point where their cars drove themselves, the whole business model would kind of turn and they would become a super profitable company. But now that Uber specifically has kind of given up on developing their own self-driving or at least significantly deprioritized it. And there kind of seems to be this sort of, not second guessing, but at least sort of stepping back in the industry at large that like, Hey, we might be a little further away from self-driving than we thought we were Mm -hmm. putting all those things together. It's like you, you look at Uber situation and like, because of that first factor, because they're not the ones actively developing the technology anymore. Even when we get to the point where there is self-driving tech available and that's going to be at some kind of unknown future date now, is that company going to sell it? Is it going to sell it to Uber? I mean, what if it ends up being one of Uber's competitors that gets to it first? It's, I just, there's no, there's just no path to profitability. I I wouldn't be as doom and gloom as that. Cause I assume eventually like just the car, like, well, maybe I like, I don't have enough of a finance background to understand this, but like, once they're both public companies, since it's it's only Lyft and Uber, and pretty much every other regional competitor has been um, kind of priced out of the market, like eventually they have, like they can't, like it's not VC money anymore. Like they have to eventually start pricing the product so close to what it actually costs. Like, so I'm not saying that's going to inherently make them profitable, but like when you're a public company, don't you eventually have to try to price towards that as a as being a goal? I mean, yeah, you do. 
<laughs> but yeah, I mean, but that but that is the thing where like, and I'm not sure we'll get to it today, but you can throw a link in the show notes where um, the Ford CEO said that, oh yeah, we're actually we're kind of backtracking on how um, pervasive and comprehensive we thought the application of self driving uh, and like what is it called level five category five autonomous technologies actually end up level, being level five, yeah, yeah, like how effective that's actually going to be, and if that's going to be a thing that. Um, and and, and uh, is that that's actually prevalent and and commonplace, and that's something that where I ext- like have been extremely critical of Tesla, where they're a company that is objectively not implementing the proper um, and necessary technology in their cars to even think about actually doing full level five autonomous driving because they don't employ lidar and they are trying to do everything camera based and Uber or sorry and Tesla keeps. Um, fudging what they're putting on their website and the promises that they're making on self-driving stuff but even if it conflicts with what their ceo is saying it's like i think just everybody on the self-driving car front is trying to figure out what they're gonna do because it's not really panning out where it's sure it's good for maybe 96 percent of driving but it's those edge cases where if robotic uh like algorithms and like driving starts killing people like that's that's that doesn't fly or that doesn't drive, like whatever you want to call it, like that's that's going to be a problem. And that is one of the keys to Uber's overall profitability because that was the whole thing is that you build a captive market and you edge at all your competitors. And eventually after three or five years, you push out the human cost and you just have a fleet of self-driving things and everything's great. But it really seems like, especially after that Arizona accident that Uber had that and the kind of lapses in Uber's safety um policies and procedures that like yeah they're just not that part of the business plan is not really going to pan out and that makes the whole not really profitable part a lot more likely because i like i think most people just wouldn't use uber if it actually cost close to what the actual cost providing the service was exactly and you know like we were saying at the top i i think if self-driving were in that like kind of three to five year time horizon that you kind of just threw out there, which I think maybe a couple of years ago, some people were were starting to buy into. But if that technology is significantly further out, if that's seven, 10, 15 years away, I mean, we're going to get there. But if it, if it, if it's that far, then well, they, they, they don't have the runway to operate at a loss for five years. Exactly. Exactly. And I, you know, I, I'll go back to the, the other point that I made too, which is uh, what I would be concerned about as an investor would be even when we get to the point of self-driving, there's no guarantee that Uber is going to have easy or affordable access to it. Like I, I, I'm I'm sure I've said this on the show. Like I thought it was key for them to be a pioneer in that technology so that they could own it. And now that they're sort of backing away from it, it just, it feels like, um, it just feels like they're 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 sort of not in control of their future anymore, and that's mm-hmm. it's just a, that's a bad position to be in. Yeah, uh, the the other standout parts that I actually thought were interesting, um, and this actually uh, it's weird that this might actually be the best part of their business, because um, we've I've expressed my disdain for um, delivery food that's not pizza. Um, Uber Eats is apparently a extremely fast growing part of their business. And even though that also probably operates at a uh, in predatory pricing um, and uh, 
a below margin pricing with introductory offers and stuff like that, where Uber Eats is actually a critical part of their business now too. Um, and that's something that doesn't necessarily re- rely on self-driving. And that's actually um, arguably a more legitimate avenue for a business. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Yeah. It's got to be some positives here. Uh, but yeah, people should go. I mean, S1s are always fun to read. Uh, so yeah, go go on to Edgar and see what's up. Uh, Ryan changes to Google Plus. What? what? What's that? I have no idea. I must have been looking at something else when I wrote that. <laughs> uh, oh, I, was, I meant to... Too, too many too many pluses. No. Oh, that is what I was thinking of. I was going to say Ryan, uh, Ryan changes to Google Wi-Fi, but I think I started looking at the Disney thing and wrote Plus. <laughs> so that is a segue over to Disney Plus. Again, a busy Thursday. Uh, under their uh, April Investor Showcase thingy, uh, Bob Iger, friend of the show, um, debuted or or pre-announced. He pulled an apple. He uh, uh, talked about something that's not going to be available for a very long time. Uh, so Disney Plus, their over-the-top service, is going to be out in November of this year. It is going to cost $7 a month. And it is going to have most of the Disney back catalog um, and a whole bunch of stuff from the content uh, divisions that they own, like uh, Marvel, Star Wars Studios, or IG- IGM, ILM, whatever it's called, and um, uh, Pixar and stuff like that. So yeah, another thing called Plus. <laughs> another thing that's not part of your cable bundle. I don't know. Like it's, it doesn't. I think it's one billion percent sure. Uh, like I, I think I, I put it on my tombstone that seven dollars a month is introductory pricing, and they're going to pull a Hulu or a Google TV or any of that kind of stuff, and that's going to shoot right up, uh, right up to eleven dollars a month, like after a year. Like that seems to either the service is going to stink, and they're going to have really, really long release windows where you don't get anything good for um, like a year, or it has to get more expensive, right? hundred um, percent. Today was kind of funny because, you know, the, the news was happening at an investor call. Like Disney had some number of months ago had said, you know, hey, you know, we have this investor meeting on April 11th that that's going to be the day where we tell you more about Disney Plus. So we've kind of known that this was going to be the day for a while. And as the day was going on, like the news kind of slowly leaked out and like early on, it seemed like exactly like what I was personally expecting and kind of like what everybody was expecting, where the app itself looks basically like every other... <laughs> looks like iTunes. Uh, yeah, it basically looks like every other uh, streaming application does. It's you know, it's your typical kind of like grid layout with a bunch of like basically mini screens that you scroll around to access different categories of content. Um, so everything was, was kind of predictable and expected, but then when it, when they got to the price, I, I maybe, I guess it actually, it does sound like some people were expecting it to be in this range, but I was I was shocked at how low it is because, you know, they're talking about 500 Disney movies being available on day one, like, like 7,000 Disney TV episode shows, rather episodes of TV shows. They're going to have all of this original content. It's where new releases are going to come from. So it seems like even if you're just a casual fan of Disney or you, you, know, you like a particular segment of Disney, like the case of me with Star Wars and with you and Pixar, it seems like the, the $7 is a totally good value. And then, gosh, if you're someone with 
you know, a couple of younger kids who is always wanting to watch Disney movies. Like, I mean, this just seems like kind of the steal of the century. So I'm with you in that it does seem like it's too good to be true. And either this is some crazy low introductory price or there's going to be some devil in the details that comes out where it's like, well, yes, new releases are going to come here, but only after they've been available for purchase only for six months or something like that. So we still have to kind of wait and see how that's going to work. Yeah, I would actually discount the, like, because would do you, do you care about the back catalog? Like, I mean, you, I assume, like, because the one, the, what we haven't mentioned is that they mentioned, that they said that 4K and HDR will be included in this, which is actually pretty neat. But let me, like, for you, like, you might rewatch a couple of Star Wars movies, like, but after the first month or two, does the back catalog actually matter to you? The back catalog, not so much. I mean, you're right in that I have some interest, particularly on the Star Wars side. Like, where I'm hoping this goes is this is going to be the first time that we see uh, some of the older Star Wars movies in 4K HDR. Currently, it's it's just uh, The Last Jedi, which is uh, episode 8 of the main series, and then Solo, which was the Han Solo spinoff. Those are currently the only two Star Wars movies that Disney's put out in 4K and everything before that, including... Um, episode seven and Rogue One, which are the two other Disney produced movies, those those have never come out in 4K. So I'm I'm really hopeful that this is going to be finally the time where all of the series is available in 4K. But for me, actually, on an ongoing basis, what I'm sort of interested in is their original content. So you know they've been talking a lot about this live action Star Wars show that they're working on. I think they're is a second Star Wars show that they're developing, which they haven't talked about as much. That's the kind of stuff that on an ongoing basis, I'm really uh, curious to see. But I mean, you know, I think like in the case of Apple TV+, Plus, which I think we were um, really down on, and, and rightfully so, um, I think actually a, a positive takeaway from it, which is tied into this, Disney Plus story as well, which is, I mean, even like, even let's say that Disney Plus and uh, Apple TV Plus end up somewhere in the like 15 bucks a month kind of range in the medium ish term. That's there. I mean, if you are watching one or two shows a month, that's, that's huge value. Like you compare, you compare what 15 bucks buys for other forms of entertainment. And, you know, I don't know. Like to, to me, it seems like it'd be pretty easy to uh, get your money's worth. But I mean, but think about it on a monthly basis. Like, of, of just add all the stuff up. So, you, okay, so let's say you like The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu and you watch Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon Prime and you like that uh, C show on Apple TV whenever that comes out and then you like whatever the Star Wars thing is on Disney Plus and then... You've got Netflix, and then isn't there one other one? And then you 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 want to watch John Oliver on HBO? Like he has seven services that all cost you fifteen dollars a month. On top of your like, I mean, like I just think that's a hard sell after a while, especially when. And I know Netflix is not pricing their like the content creation budget and advertising budget that they have versus the um, 
amount of money they're actually taking from consumers. Like there's, it's not priced appropriately, but it just feels like that compare like the comparability to Netflix at 14 or $15 a month, like just having a couple of exclusive shows and being able to charge 10 to $15 a month. It just seems like the, the value isn't there comparatively. And when you, when so, you yeah, I mean, it just like, just, it, it adds up. I don't know. No, you're right. I mean, the, the subscription fatigue, which is the thing that more and more people are kind of starting to get privy to now is definitely a real thing. Um, but I, I just think with Disney in particular, I, I think the story is much, much less certain around Apple. But with Disney in particular, I mean, <laughs> you look, so you look at the way that their app is laid out, which I think is actually like, it's surprisingly simple and to the point, which I actually really appreciate. It's, there's literally five boxes at the top. It's Disney, Pixar, Marvel, Star Wars, National Geographic. I mean, that's well, I don't I don't really know how popular National Geographic is, but the other four are like four of the most beloved series of film and TV that has been put out in recent memory. So that's an absolute just treasure trove of content. So I mean Disney no matter how much subscription fatigue or whatever else people have, Disney's going to, I think, be hugely successful. Players like Apple, where there's a lot of uncertainty about the content, and I would say even Netflix, where I, I would say there's some uncertainty about the business model. You know, I, I don't know. We'll have to kind of see how that shakes out. But I, I don't know. If I was thinking 10 years ahead and trying to sort out who was going to be successful in this new streaming world? I mean, I would, I would probably put my money on Disney. I would agree, and and I will bandwagon on anything where you're saying that Disney's success is is a equal predictor of Apple being dumb. But um, that's not putting words in your mouth, is it? Um, but yeah, it makes sense. But I think what the the, the proof is in the pudding is is whether or not they're going to um do this right because the thing is like disney has to also try to preserve its legacy business models and to get people to continue paying for cable and all that kind of stuff so they they because that's been the other rumor or the thing that's been suggested here is that disney plus will be bundled in with espn plus and there might also be a tie-in with hulu where there might be one subscription cost for all these services but espn plus on its own is a very is a fairly worthless service because all the content that you'd actually want to watch requires a traditional cable subscription or like some type of like Google TV thing. So like, it just depends on whether or not like, sure it's gonna be $7 a month now. And then it's probably gonna creep up to 10, 12, $15 a month. But I just think it really depends on what the um, release windows are like and how much stuff they still um, hold back to try to make all their money on Blu-ray and um, their different networks on traditional cable TV. Well, and that's, you know, going back to the beginning of the conversation where we focused on price. I mean, I think that's where the big question mark is because at $7 a month, it's not a replacement for all these other revenue streams, but in a future state where the service is, I don't know, 15, 20 bucks a month, maybe that does become sort of a replacement for their existing business models. And again, I think if there's any of these major players who can get away with charging a significant premium, it's going to be Disney because Pixar is not going anywhere. 
the Star Wars franchise is not going anywhere. Marvel's not going anywhere. And of course, <laughs> Mickey Mouse is not going anywhere. So, you know, I mean, D Disney, if anything, by all accounts, is more popular than it's ever been. It, the theme parks are um, hugely popular right now, especially with the whole Star Wars land expansion this summer. You know, they've consistently hit it out of the park with Marvel, have mostly done right with Star Wars. It's, you know, it, it, Disney is, uh, I think, super well positioned uh, with the way things are going and with streaming. Yeah. I appreciate the hit it out of the park joke. That's just, you were just going to let it go, but I like it. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. Again, the, the, yeah. It's a balance because, again, for a gigantic multinational corporation with which operates in a lot of different business units and like other stuff like that, like again, their whole thing is that they're kind of like Apple, where they want to <laughs> just extract as much money as they can out of people across uh, platforms, but they also have to be mindful of not um, oversaturating people. And I, I think actually Disney's done a fairly decent job with that. I do too. So let's. I mean, yeah. And I think maybe the closing thought here is you know in a, in a world where so subscriptions become more competitive and people do really start making decisions about what services they want to subscribe to and which they don't people are going to choose disney people are not going to choose apple tv plus over disney plus definitely um you know many people are not going to choose hbo over um disney plus i mean disney plus is set up to kind of appeal to everybody it appeals to the star wars nerds like me it applies to the pixar fans like you it applies to families with little kids it i mean it, it, it sort of is it's for everybody and it's it's you know it's it's um historical stuff it's back catalog stuff it's new stuff it's kind of everything you'd want in a streaming service and i know like this this tweet you put in the notes kind of made fun about the the interface which i think is deserved and i'll, I'll put that in the notes but i mean ultimately that stuff kind of doesn't matter it's really just all, it's all about the content and disney is is supreme there yeah only other thing is i i am this this would lead into something we'll talk about probably later this year's i'm i'm curious as to what warner and at&t think they're actually going to make that gets people to subscribe compared to this and on top of hbo I think I think it it is interesting where in the past myself probably included in this like 15 bucks a month for HBO actually seemed generally worth it right you've got mm -hmm. movies you've got really really compelling original TV series you can usually get it for less than that you know bundled in with your cable um but I just I think in the future even at, even if you are able to get it at a slightly reduced rate HBO is just good. like networks like that, Showtime, Stars, like all that stuff's going to start not looking as valuable when there's a service like Disney Plus, which is cheaper or the same price that's got, I think, content that appeals to more people. How? Because it, like if you think about Apple TV Plus or Disney Plus in terms of like the, because you already kind of said that after the first couple of months, the back catalog stuff is minimized and it's the original content that you care about. Like in terms of the amount of new content that you're actually getting compared to the HBO back catalog stuff and the maybe 10 new shows they do a year, isn't it kind of comparable? 
Well, I mean, that's that's the devil in the details that I was talking about. We need to see the execution on Disney Plus's original content, which you know they said today initially is going to be fairly limited and is going to have sort of a slow rollout, but that they hope will or are planning on picking up over time. So we just have to see what that is. All right. Uncontroversial news. Ikea and Sonos are uh, put a... They had previously talked about a partnership and they now have a product that's going to be launching in August, which is um, a bookshelf speaker and a lamp that is also a speaker. And actually what I don't know, is it a, is it a smart speaker? Like, does this have the echo assistant built into it like a sonos one or is it just a sonos speaker i think it's just a sonos speaker the lady in a can integration is particular to the sonos one and the sonos beam it's not um it's not a like a a native feature of all of sonos's products Hmm. yeah i don't know i like we only throw this in here because we both you know we've moved past ikea for the most part in our lives but Still cool, kind of. Well, and it, you know, I think it actually, to bring it back to the T word stuff, ties into another story, which I don't think is really worth getting super into, but the price drop with HomePod. Um, you know, to me, this is a, another really good example of where, you know, Apple just seems to be sort of out of touch with where. A particular market is, which I would say is a pretty concerning thing and probably more concerning than something like canceling air power. Sorry, just had to bring that up again. Oh, no, that's fine. I mean, but again, I still think you're wrong, or like I still think we, we have valid disagreement on um, the importance of air power and that kind of stuff. But I don't know, like, do you, but Apple thinks they're a post hardware company now. Where they think they're just like their whole, like the most of their business model is basically just like dicing money out of people's pockets because they already are locked into the ecosystem. Like, do you actually think they care about the HomePod? Like, well, I, so I think here's a here here's here's an opportunity for you to to give a hot take. Sure. Is is HomePod the last new line of Apple hardware that we see? Or at least see for quite some time, and I'm you know I'm not I'm not including like refreshes on existing product lines, but like an entirely new product category, which I would say HomePod falls into, and is is Apple's kind of most recent product category that they've gotten into. Is is that the last? Yes, I think probably for the next five years. There's not like I, I think there'd be new Macs. I think there's be new iPads. Like I I think yeah I don't think they're gonna. Because that that was the whole thing with the watch and the wearables, and there was that that jackass uh, uh, Wall Street analyst that was like, "Apple's going to go out of business if they don't release a wearable or a netbook within the next nine months or whatever." Like, I don't, I don't, yeah, no, I I think they're probably content with what they're doing, because like, well, what else could they possibly release? I guess the, my, my counter question to uh, turn the tables back on you is, do you think there's a second gen HomePod ever? No. Hmm. I disagree. I think HomePod. I think HomePod's a product that they're going to. I think it's going to go the way of the Hi-Fi. But they're different, though. The Hi-Fi was a good product. Well, that just makes its demise sadder. But I, I think they're. I think they're going to end up in the same place, unless Apple completely 
rethinks the focus of the product and kind of consequently reprices the product, which I just, I don't think they're going to do. Do you think they're ever going to release a new Apple TV? I mean, like I, I use that only I as a rhetorical I know, device. Like, I, I guess it, I guess, I mean, I would say maybe not, but I, for, but for a very different reason. I mean, HomePod is just, it's just not a good product and it's not priced appropriately. Well, allegedly it sounds good. I mean, but that, but that's, to bring it back to the ikea sonos partnership that's just not people's priority with these products myself included you know i when i was in you know putting in speakers around the home with the beam and with the sonos one those are definitely not the best sounding products in their category you can get much better standalone speakers the home pod included from a sound quality standpoint same with the the beam it's by far and away not the best sound bar out there i'm sure your uh, bose one sounds way better than the beam does but you know like i just i don't necessarily need like the highest quality audio and i think that's a fairly common refrain amongst you know most people but i but with you know going back to your question about the apple tv that's a different thing where i actually think that is a that's a at least semi popular product. I also not priced appropriately, but uh, well, but but Apple is a company that just in its DNA and with Tim Cook at the helm will never make a product that's competitive in terms of price. Like they they just think that because they're special that they can charge one hundred fifty dollars for something that could, could it should cost fifty eighty if you think it's a luxury product. The thing with the future of Apple TV, more so than anything we've talked about so far, though, is I just I just don't know what the next version of Apple TV does that the current version doesn't. Like 4K HDR was kind of the point that they had been working to, and they got there. So like I'm just not really sure like what what a next version of Apple TV would do. Well, for the love of God, hopefully they redesign the remote. Like, I mean, I, like, I think they have to do something with it just because, like, that was the whole thing with, uh, what's they it called? To, they need to lower the price. That's what they need to do. Well, but they won't. Again, this is Apple. Um, they, they gotta pay for Oprah. Um, but they, what do, what do you call it? What's the thing that they talked about? The, the one thing that wasn't called Plus. The services thing. Oh, the TV channels. No, um, Apple Arcade. Like they, they allegedly, like they're saying that every game that's part of that has to run on both iOS, tvOS, and your Mac. So I assume that implies, like, I, 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 I can't believe anybody inside Apple thinks, well, uh, this is from the company that keeps shipping the butterfly keyboard, but thinks that the, I, that the Siri remote is an amazing game controller and they're somehow gonna, because otherwise, if they didn't believe in the Apple TV at all, they would have just said, oh, these games run on your Mac and your iPad. So that's the only thing that, th- that thinks that they still see a future for Apple TV, even though they um, have abandoned a lot of their principles. And there's like, yeah, let's let's shove iTunes or Apple TV Plus on e- even like Vizio TVs. Let's just make it run everywhere. <sighs> All right. Uh, what's what else is important? Um, actually, so some, super. Let, let's let's do a quick uh, Tesla roundup because there uh, you have some uh, you have a real world review of um, one of these self driving features, sort of. Uh, Tesla shares fell uh, a week ago because delivery slowed, um, and they're worried about their ability to meet uh, meet sales targets. You can see a link in the notes to a Wall Street Journal article about that. 
there's also a New York Times piece uh, from earlier last week uh, about um, Tesla having an early lead in uh, electric cars, but the fact that Audi, um, Mercedes, Volvo, and a bunch of other people are catching up quickly and they have other strengths in the car business that makes it probably uh, that Tesla's lead isn't actually that large. Um, so yeah, check that out. But mostly, yeah, I want to know about your experience using whatever the most advanced legally available self-driving stuff from Tesla is, according to Mr. Musk. Well, so but before we get to that, we'll get there. But I, I do want to challenge kind of that last topic that you brought up, hmm. which is I feel like one of the big things I hear about with Tesla is like, well, oh, sure, yeah, no, they're, you know, they're, they are shipping EVs in, in a pretty decent volume now. And yes, they've got this, this big charging network. But I mean, you know, other car companies are going to just catch up to them. Like, that's been a story for like years now. And I don't know, like, my, my rebuttal back would be like, all right, well, then, like, let's see it. Like, I mean, all of these car companies talk a big game and say that they can catch up to Tesla at any time. But like, let's see it. They're doing it. Like, but, but uh, nobody's doing it yet. They're doing it now. Who? Audi. Uh, the 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 Etron hasn't even started delivering in the U.S. yet. But they're working on it. A, a Volvo uh, has well, their. Of course, they're working on it. But I, I want to see somebody do it. That's yeah. My point. But but it's it's coming. Yeah, but it's been coming for years now. But it's coming now. <laughs> like yeah, we'll we'll see. Like Volvo has their the, the Polestar one. The, like it's 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 happening. Like that's the like. And I'm not like. Oh, but where's the where's the where's the nationwide charging network to go along with these cars? They're gonna figure it out. Like here here's the thing. <laughs> like, I understand these are really unsatisfying answers, but it's like and, and I don't care about the legacy car companies at all. It's mostly a dislike for Tesla, but like. What's a, what's another company that was a pioneer? Like, how how do we know that Tesla isn't going to be like Microsoft when it came to tablet computing? Like, they they, they did a lot of stuff to make electric cars a thing and to prove no, the market. Nobody nobody liked Microsoft tablets, whereas people, myself included, really like Tesla. There, there's other stuff. I like. There's a better example out there that I'm not thinking of, but. Like the, Tesla did a lot of work of laying the, like iTunes laid the groundwork for Spotify. I, I don't, I have no idea. Um, but that, yeah, that they did all the work of making people think that EVs were viable, that Tesla, the fact that people have positive reviews of them to an extent when there's not rainwater going into your trunk, like there, they did the work to make people realize that EVs could be a thing. Like people thought, oh yeah, the, um, the plug-in Prius and the GM EV1 and all those guys. Oh, those were cute little experiments. But Tesla actually made it a thing. They did all the hard work of actually making it so people think, oh, yeah, EVs are actually viable. And now I think, like, I don't know, like, it's just like the Model S looks like a car from 20 years ago. Like, maybe maybe it's just the Bay Area thing. But, like, it looks like a really, really old car. The Model 3 looks looks cool, looks fine. The Model Y, if you squint, some, maybe you'll be able to tell that they're different cars. But I think eventually people won't want to drive ever. Like, I don't think Tesla can be the only brand that people make. Like, I don't think the Bay Area is going to be 80% Teslas, even though sometimes on some days it feels like that. Like, people want different cars. So I think the better interiors and the different experiences that you can get from Porsche, Audi, or even at the other range, people want like a Nissan Leaf. Like, there's other stuff. There's, there's other, there's room in the market for more than one player. 
And I think Tesla did a lot of the hard work where, but that the legacy automakers have enough knowledge in other realms that means it's not necessarily that hard. Like again, we, we, we talked like three weeks ago about the gigantic advantage and, uh, uh, that 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 the uh, the supercharger network is a great antidote to um, range anxiety for EV owners, and that's been a huge boon for a Tesla. But like I, those are things that can be overcome. I just don't see this future because like if, if we're saying that the other brands aren't ready for prime time and that they're never going to catch up, like uh, it, sell me on a future where it's literally just Tesla. I don't see it. Like this isn't going to be some monoculture where there's literally only one car. I'm not I'm not saying it's never going to happen and I'm I'm not saying that these car companies aren't capable of it. I'm just saying shut up and actually execute on something. Like I'm just I'm ti- I'm tired of hearing about these like theoretical plans and like these cars that are coming out in 2024, 2026 like but if if you can if you can catch up to Tesla, do it. Execute on it. I'm going to go buy show, show me, show me, show me an alternative to the supercharger network. Cause I just don't, I don't see it. I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm just saying like, it's cheap and easy to whiteboard a bunch of ideas or to come out and give a press conference or go to a car show and show off a demo vehicle that doesn't actually drive and show off all these ideas you have. That's easy. It's cheap and easy to do. But to actually execute on it is is hard. And I, I'm just saying if if these car companies think it's so easy to do, then do it. Well, who's saying it's easy to do? Well, I mean, is that's sort of like the premise of this New York Times article, right? It's like, you know, Audi, amongst others, are on the precipice of starting to catch up. And I just I just don't I don't think they are. I don't think the evidence is there yet. All right, let's go into Fantastic. I'll put a reminder two years from now. <laughs> I, I, I yeah i don't think it's easy but i don't i i yeah i i don't see your vision of the future i don't see a world where literally every car and let, let's say someplace that's not here that you go up to tacoma washington and that every car is a tesla i don't see it well and and to prove that i'm not just some tesla homer we can transition <laughs> to the, the second, second topic you wanted to get on which was the uh um, navigate on autopilot, which got a recent update. You're the only person I know that uses the word Homer that way. <laughs> uh, now a uh, Disney property. Get it, Homer, Homer Simpson. Anyway, um, so my car got the. I mean, they're not really calling it like second version of Navigate on Autopilot. I don't think it really has like a formal name, but it, it, it's an update to Navigate on Autopilot where. Whereas you previously had to uh, initiate lane changes when they were suggested, the the system now, if you turn this on, will just make lane changes on its own. And you know, one of the things I was hoping for was they were taking all of the data they've gotten so far and improving on the car's decisions that it makes with changing lanes. Because, you know, before when you had to confirm the lane change. Like a lot of times it just kind of didn't make sense. Like you would, it would want you to um, uh, get out of the passing lane, even though you weren't technically in a passing lane. Like the, the best example is where the only lane to the left of you is a carpool lane. 
but only at certain times of the day. And you're driving next to it in a time of day where it's not a carpool lane. So you're, you're not in the furthest left available lane and you're, the car will constantly want you to get out of there. Um, it will want you to pass slower cars, but like do so, you know, where it's just going to have you get right back into the lane. Cause you're going to have to make a freeway transition or something. Like I was hoping that when they got to the point where the car was going to automatically make these lane changes, that that was going to imply that the decision-making was going to be better. But no, not not really <laughs> from what I've seen. Um, I used it kind of for my first longer drive uh, to and from San Jose yesterday. And, you know, it, it's definitely gotten a lot better compared to when it first came out. Um, and it, it does a lot of smart things. Like, I mean, one thing it did that I was really impressed by last night was there was some construction going on. And a couple of uh, the left lanes of the freeway were closed and they were, they were coned off. And the car was smart enough to know that the, and I was driving in the lane closest to where the cones were. When you look at the little display, you know, it, it shows you all the lanes that it sees, which normally on the freeway is like all four or five lanes, whatever. But it knew because the cones were there that those far two left lanes weren't available. And so they actually, you know, uh, disappeared from the dis the display. And then as soon as the cones were removed, the lanes came back. So, I mean, it, it does a lot of smart things, but it's decision-making around when to change lanes is still just not very good. Um, and it, it really, it, it doesn't really work super well. Like if you have to change lanes where there's a bunch of traffic it, it, especially like stop and go traffic where, you, you know, as a human driver, you sometimes do have to just kind of, you, you know, be a little aggressive or whatever. It it just doesn't handle that very well. There's just, it's, it's getting there, but like, you know, Elon's been on Twitter saying like, Oh, this is like this, like huge update. This is a huge deal. Um, whereas I would say there's a lot of neat things about it. And it, again, it's gotten a ton better over a relatively short period of time, but to frame it as like some revolutionary thing is way, way overselling it. That's a bummer. Well, so I guess the only follow-up question I would have is, um, what, what level of involvement do you have in it? Like, do, do you trust it? Does the car, allow you to trust it or are there like fail safes in there where to ensure that you're still being attentive while this is happening so it's it's in response to um you know the the accidents that started happening a couple of years ago like my understanding is that when autopilot was first rolled out i think it only checked if your hands were on the wheel like every two minutes um whereas now that check is like every it depends on how fast you're going because when you're in stop and go traffic, it doesn't bug you nearly as often. But when you're at like full highway speed, you know, it's checking in, I think, like every 15, 20 seconds. And, you, it's, it's, and it's not good enough just to have your hands on the wheel. Like if your hands are on the wheel and you're not really applying any pressure, it warns you as if your hands aren't on the wheel at all. Like you have to be firmly gripping the wheel. So it, it is pretty good about checking in on you now. And I'm, you know, 
checks or no checks, I, I mean, I don't, I don't blindly trust autopilot. So I'm, I'm pretty attentive. And I, especially since this new update came out or anytime there's a new update, I, I do like to see how it's working. So I will, you know, kind of let the car do its thing to the most, to the greatest extent that I can. But, you know, obviously any time where I've, I have any, any doubts, I'll, I'll take over. Again, like it's, um, it's another really good example of like, I just kind of can't believe this thing's just out there in the wild. It's, it's kind of crazy to me that, I mean, it's, it's, it's a beta feature. I mean, we, I know we already talked about this, but it's just, it's crazy that these beta features are just allowed to be out there on public roads. It's yeah, it's kind of wild. Yep. There ought to be a law. <laughs> City should get on that. The busy messing with Amazon ghost stores, but yeah, exactly. Letting all these, uh, yeah. Um, was there? Uh, uh, is it running long? A couple Apple things. Uh, the the Powerbeats, uh, Powerbeats Pro. There are going to be a version of the Powerbeats uh, wireless headphones that are similar to AirPods that are um, untethered and have a charging case. That's gonna be pretty neat. I desperately want these. Yeah, I still like my bows, but I kind of miss my power beats. I like the over the ear just because they literally can never fall out. Um, yeah, HomePod price drop. We kind of already covered that, so it's now two ninety nine or two forty nine. I think it's two. Used to be well, three fifty. I don't know. I think it's three fifty. No, it's two ninety nine now. Yeah, yeah, still too expensive. Yeah, way too expensive. Uh oh, yeah. The thing about the uh, the MacBook Pro. So Ming Chi Kuo, friend of the show. Uh, announced or had an analyst note like six months ago saying that there was very likely to be a new like six inch, sorry, 16 inch MacBook Pro coming out later this year um, that was going to be redesigned in a lot of ways. And a revised note says that that's probably not happening until 2021, which I I guess suggests that there are going to be no new non butterfly keyboard laptops for um, a very long time. So that, well, but, or, or is there? So I don't know if you saw this. So the, so Mac rumors amongst others reported this, that Quo's note was a revision of his previous note, which it, it indicated that we were going to potentially see some new Macs in 2019, but now we weren't going to see those until 2021. But I'll put this, um, I'll put this in the thing. Um, the Verge and others have actually been suggesting that uh, Quo's latest report was actually mistranslated, Ooh. and that what he's saying is, well, he's basically not saying anything new about the Max he's expecting to come this year. So people are sort of implying that those are still coming, but what he's talking about in this note is the next next version. So we'll see a redesign in 2019, but that we're going to see a further redesign, which seems to be focused on the screen technology in 2021. So this is not a delay, but rather a further revision that we're going to see in a couple of years. Okay, I'm interested. I, 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 I'm, I'm hopeful, I believe, sort of, maybe, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> oh, I need a new laptop. Um... Okay, so there was that. 
Uh, iTunes might finally get broken up with a bunch of funky marzipan apps. Um, yeah, I think that's mainly it. Yeah, I'm I'm curious about that that iTunes stuff because you know the the death of iTunes has been reported for a long, long time, and it it does kind of feel like this is actually going to be the moment where iTunes becomes sort of like a niche tool for people who still want to manage their own music catalogs and for people who sync their iPhone to their computer. Yeah, but the thing is, and uh, people should listen to a very, very, very good episode of Upgrade this week uh, where they kind of talked about this. And like, I just assume like it's probably going to be like an iTunes does a QuickTime 7 type thing where it just it's this weird app that lives in the utilities folder now. And then they just have these uh, pared down apps that do a lot less. But like, if you think about it, they're only going to be front ends for like, it's going to be a front end for the Apple video service so that you can use Apple TV channels and all the stuff they want to sell you subscriptions for. They, they're going to have a front end for Apple Music, the subscription service, and they're going to like revise the books app that already exists on, on OS X. So like what it's not like they're not bringing back iSync or like a dedicated application for like backing up your phone. So like it's just it looks like they're redesigning different front ends for their subscription services. Which fine, but I'm like, I, I don't think this is actually like a successor to iTunes. It's just eventually they're probably just going to let that die uh, even more than it already has. And they just want uh, the prettied up stuff where they're getting 10 to $35 a month out of you to have a slightly nicer interface. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. And I think I think that's a that's a noteworthy story. It's kind of an end of an era. Yeah, I don't know. Just because, yeah, I, I opened up iTunes for the first time or like in a long while. And I do miss the fact that I used to have a music library. Whereas now I kind of like, I mean, like, I don't know what I used to listen to. I don't know. It feels like music's probably important where people should know that. Yeah, I don't, I don't miss that at all. <laughs> well, it's it's because you, it, your, your music is timeless and therefore Sugar Ray in 2006 versus 2019 is it's all the same. It's still there. True. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's mostly it. And then, yeah, I think that's it. Um, yeah, we'll save a lot of these for whenever we have a slow week, but that was not this week. No. All right. What do you got for chef specials? So I've got something that was related to our Google Wi-Fi topic, which it's not Google Wi-Fi specifically, but it is mesh networks. Because as someone who made a living primarily setting up wireless networks in the kind of 2009 to 2010 range, I can tell you how painful it used to be when you'd, you know, bring one of the blue and black Linksys routers that everybody had with the, was the WRT54G, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you would bring one of those out to somebody's, right, home. And, you know, like depending on what walls were constructed with and everything, like might only really reach a couple of rooms of the home. Um, and you know, there were all these like hokey ways to try to extend the range. Like, I mean, we mentioned like a range extender or like, do you remember like there were those crazy power line adapters where you yeah, could well, like, when you were talking about the range extenders, I actually thought that's what you're talking about. 
like the ones that used your house's wiring to have like an ether jack or something yeah i mean there were those but no like like a range extender was like literally just like a, a thing you'd plug into an outlet that had a couple little antennas on it that would kind of just like relay the signal from your router so kind of like a a, a simpler version of what mesh networks do today but you know the, the point being that they're just really used to not be a great way or at least not a very accessible way like you could of course like if you had your whole home wired in ethernet you could do things like buy multiple routers and put the secondary ones like in bridge mode and all this stuff but you know like it was it was pretty interesting this weekend where i set up these two mesh networks both in well less than an hour and covered you know entire homes and some like it's wi-fi is certainly not perfect but i think it's sort of easy to miss <laughs> just how much better it's gotten and i think mesh mesh networks are a huge part of that improvement yeah that's one of those things where like yeah Eero eventually probably won't be long for this world but that'll be one of the pioneers kind of like tesla <laughs> <laughs> but no it, it is good because yeah like it used to because and that's the other thing where um i forget who makes this point but on one of the tech shows that we listen to where like the old thing used to be like if you wanted a good like if you look at the wire cutters pick for the best router and you look at the one that's not about mesh routers it looks like something out of like a uh what's his name james cameron like alien movie <laughs> right so that that's the reality we that people used to live in and i guess if, if you have one of those like really crazy routers like you know i i, I don't i don't have a like a particularly large home but you know it, it's like single story but it it's a little bit of a odd layout in parts i guess um and i i don't like a single router would would not effectively cover this house um so you know even in a situation like mine mesh networks are are huge yeah 1960s homes were not designed for 2010s wi-fi <laughs> exactly um all right. This is a pick that I've been forgetting to choose for many, many times, which people can remember because I chose cashews this last week's. Um, this is an app called get the link in the thing. I don't think I don't think you chose anything last week. Did you wasn't wasn't last week the episode where like literally the ending of the show was you saying you couldn't think of one? No, I didn't. I said and and I hopefully you didn't cut it. I talked I said uh the uh Thai chili lime cashews from Trader Joe's. I think that was the week before last. Oh, have I not had good picks for two weeks in a row? Wow, I'm really phoning it in. <laughs> but I do have the one this week, which I've been I keep forgetting to talk about for months at a time. So it's it's a freeware app on your Mac, or it's a donationware thing uh, called Satellite Eyes, uh, where basically it uses your geolocation to automatically pull down either satellite maps or um, I don't know if you've ever messed around with it. It's a thing that was it was popular on the internet maybe like five years ago. It's called uh, like Stamen Labs, where they make really really cool um, like sort of abstract uh, maps, where basically it uses your Wi-Fi location, your geolocation to automatically update your max background with a map of wherever you are. And I don't know why. I find it really, really pleasing. No, this is this is cool. And I I think if you're someone who like travels around a bunch with your Mac, this would be awesome. I think like for me where I literally use my Mac at the office and then at home, I don't think it would be particularly exciting. But but no, this is a this is a neat idea. 
Yeah, I wouldn't use the, by default. It does show you like if you go to the uh, the whatever TomTaylor.co.uk, whatever. I assume that's the developer. Um, like using the actual satellite imagery seems less. It seems weirder. Um, but if you use the abstract uh, stamen design maps, I think it's much more visually pleasing, even if your location doesn't change that much. 